who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself had reason for such confidence. If anyone else thinks he has reason to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for legalistic righteousness, faultless. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, but comes from the law, that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of, of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. May the Lord bless his reading of his word. Thanks, Jim. I did want to just take a moment to, uh, you won't know this because uh, things are pretty much fine, but uh, our computer, our main computer that is usually done for all this crashed uh, two days ago. And so uh, basically yesterday, uh, Felicia and Nate worked behind the scenes to get everything transferred and everything up and all of that. I was at a wedding. I, I was dancing, I think. Uh, I'm not sure. Electri- I was doing the electric slide while they were getting all of this ready. So anyway, I just wanted to, you don't know this, but I thought we'd at least acknowledge, thank you guys for working hard late last night to do that. So. <laughs> Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Dear God, as Jim said, your word is alive. God, I pray that as we look at your word today and look at the very heart of what the Bible is all about, that, Lord, it would indeed bring life to us. Pray that you would be working in our minds and in our hearts, Lord, to expose ourselves to you in all of our genuineness, uh, that, that we might really be transformed by your word this morning. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, despite the controversy recently that has surrounded his career, Tom Brady, Cowboys fans in the back, get ready. Tom Brady is recognized around the league as one of the hardest working football players in the league. Uh, The Under Armour commercial, which is popular now, you see Brady uh, working out every day, doing drills and push-ups and all this in the rain, And you hear him saying this same phrase every single day, every single day, every single day, no matter what. His teammates comment on how how most of the players after a game, like if they've been away, playing away, and they get on the plane to fly home, most of the players after a long week of work, 
use that flight home as an opportunity to rest or listen to music or watch movies or just chat. But Brady has known that as soon as they get on the plane, the first thing that he does is he opens up his laptop and starts studying for the next week. You might say that if you cut Tom Brady open, and of course if you're a Jets fan or a Cowboys fan today, you'd probably like to do that. You might say that if you cut Tom Brady open, you would find that he bleeds football. I have a a friend who I had the privilege of playing in a band with a number of years ago. And by the age of 10, he was already uh, basically a full-time musician. He was traveling around with his family. His family had a band, and they homeschooled him. And he just traveled around uh, playing uh, all over the country, playing the keyboard. He was a keyboard player. And and, uh, by the age of 16, he'd already played on almost 100 albums. Uh, He told me that when he was young, he would when he would learn a new song, he would learn it in all 12 keys. Then he would learn it in all 12 keys backwards. He would take the song and he would learn the song backwards just for fun, just as an exercise to grow. And, and so, so now he makes his living as a musician, recording and, and producing albums and, and all of this. And, and so I, I think that if you were to cut him open, what you might find is that he bleeds music. Another friend of mine, uh, he told me that when he sat down with his realtor to purchase a house, he lives in Maryland, just outside of Baltimore, and he sat down with his realtor, and they were discussing, you know, how much could he afford for a house, and he said, well, here's the deal. He said, this is how much money I make. Uh, This is how much season tickets to the Baltimore Orioles cost, Uh, so this is how much I have for a house. He and his wife go to virtually every home game. You might say, if you were to cut him open, that he bleeds the Baltimore Orioles. Last week, we finished up uh, our series on the seven deadly sins. And in a few weeks, we're going to begin a a new series, a a series that's going to go actually until about Easter. It's about a a 20-week series when we're going to be looking at the book of Acts. And that series is going to be titled... Living as missionaries. We're going to spend 20 weeks going through the book of Acts, which which looks at the early church and how they lived and how they operated. And what we're going to discover is that they lived as missionaries. And so we're going to start that in a few weeks. But in between, right now, what we're going to do is a quick three-week series called Bleed. And I'm basing this off of the material that I shared with the, the leadership gatherings earlier in the year. And basically what we're going to look at is our the core values of this church. It's important for us to to revisit our core values every so often to get us back to the basics. And and, and these core values, and here's what they are, gospel-centered, community-oriented, and outwardly-faced. Gospel-centered, community-oriented, and outwardly-faced. And these are core values which I believe uh, come out of the pages of Scripture and and tell us that essentially if, if you're going to be an authentic, effective church... These need to be your core values. These need to be in you. These need to be very foundational to who you are. And, and so the question which I want us to be asking ourselves throughout the series is, do we bleed these core values or do we just believe them? Do we bleed them or, 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 or do we just believe them, right? Like, I mean, you agree, like, yeah, I, I believe 
Those sound good. Gospel-centered, community-oriented, outwardly faced. Sounds good to me. Don't disagree. I, I believe that, but, but do we bleed it? Because, you know, you can, bleed, you can believe things with your mind that you don't really bleed with your heart. Uh, I'll give you an example. I, I, I believe uh, that any Ridge Diner fans here? Ridge Diner, Park Ridge Diner? Yeah, see, right? I believe that the Ridge Diner has the best pancakes in, in Bergen County. Uh, but I, I wouldn't say that I bleed that. I mean, I wouldn't say that I orient my life around that truth, right? I mean, it's not like when Laura and I sit down to do the budget, it's not like, you know, there's a line item for pancakes at the Ridge Diner, right? It's, I, don't, I don't bleed it. I don't orient my life around it. I, I believe that it's true, but I, I, don't, I don't bleed it, right? So you, you, we can believe things we don't necessarily bleed. And that's the question. Do, do, we, do we just believe or do we bleed these core values? You see, to put it in church terms, well, believing something is, is, well, it's what you do when you're thinking about it. What you believe is something that embodies everything that you do, whether you're thinking about it or not. Believing something is, is, is something you might sign off on your membership application. I believe that. But to believe it, it affects how we interact with one another on a daily basis. It's something that, that just dictates the very culture of the church. And so my hope is that as we go through this, we will increasingly be a church that bleeds, that bleeds these core values. So the first one we're going to look at today is gospel-centered. Gospel-centered. Oh. I want you to just look here in this passage in Philippians, and what we discover here is that Paul bleeds the gospel. What is a go- Okay, gospel just means good news. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. So you you could also say to be gospel-centered is to be Christ-centered, to be Jesus-centered, that everything is oriented around the person and the work of Jesus. And what we find in this passage is that Paul believes it. He doesn't just believe it, right? He orients his whole life, right? He, He says, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ, What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ. You see, when something is your, when you bleed something, when it's your core value, then it relativizes everything else. When when, when something is, when it's the blood that runs through your veins, right? Uh, well, I, you know, if you lose that, and here's the thing, you know, a church that, that doesn't bleed these values is going to die. Because it's, it's the blood, it's the lifeblood that runs through, through a person and through a church. And so if we, we don't bleed, if, if, if these aren't there, well, then, then the church dies. It's ineffective. So, so th- this has to be something that we bleed. And this is what we find, that Paul absolutely bleeds the gospel. Everything is oriented around this. So that's the question we need to ask ourselves. Do we just believe or do we bleed the gospel? Now, to, to answer that question, we need to unpack a little bit more. What is the gospel? and What, what are the implications of it? What, what would it look like? What would it look like for a person or a church to bleed the gospel? So we've got to unpack the gospel a little bit. We're going to do it in three ways. We're going to see that the gospel is news, the gospel is freedom, and the gospel is power. The gospel is news, the gospel is freedom, 
and the gospel is power. First of all, the gospel is news. It's news. Uh, what I mean by that is that it's, the gospel is not good advice. It's not even strong advice. It's not even, it, it's, it's not a new philosophy. It's not a new way of life. You see, the, the gospel is, is news. It's news. In other words, you know, what are, the, what are the early Christians getting all riled up about? What's Paul getting all riled up about? Why is he running around all over the Mediterranean telling people about the gospel? Is he running around, you know, saying, I've found a new way of living. I've found eight new principles or steps that could really change your life. Is that, is that what he's, no, that's not what he's, that's not what the early church was doing. What were they doing? They were announcing a news event. They were centering their lives around something that had happened. They centered their lives around a news event. Of course, what is it? Well, I'll, I'll go to 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he, he gets right to the heart of what the gospel he says. He says, now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. Right? He's going back to the core values. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. You see, the Christianity isn't centered around just a new way of living, timeless truths that will help you get through life. It, it, it's not a, a philosophy of life. It's centered around a news event. It's not good advice. It's, it's good news. And, and this actually should then change also our approach to the Bible. It, it informs the way we look at the Bible because, you see, the Bible also is not just a book of good advice. The Bible is, is, is not, a, it's not a, a new philosophy of life. It's, it's not a, a, just a manual for how to live your life. You see, the Bible's actually a story. It's a story. What the Bible does is it unfolds for us a story, and in its most basic form, it's laid out in three acts, which is the way you know, the most common uh, stories are laid out, three acts. In three acts, it's usually you've got the setup, you've got the conflict, and then you've got the resolution. Three acts, setup, conflict, resolution. And you find this is exactly what you find in the Bible. You have creation, fall, and restoration. And you see, everything in the Bible ultimately points to, tells part of that story. It's not laid out entirely in chronological order. It starts with Genesis, okay, it starts at the beginning in Revelation, we get to the end. And some of it's chronological, but sometimes, you know, the prophets in the Old Testament, they'll often sometimes talk about the future, so it's not always laid out chronologically, but still, nonetheless, every passage at some point is, is, is unpacking and unfolding this story of creation fall, and restoration. And of course, as uh, if you look at how stories work, there's always one point in the story which is the most important. You know, you've got the setup, you've got the conflict, you've got the resolution, and the most important point in that story is called the climax, right? If you study literature, that's what they call, they call it, the climax. And, and, and the climax is that point which everything before it has been leading up to, and everything after it flows out of. 
And of course, what is the climax of the story that the Bible unfolds for us? Well, I'll tell you what the early church would tell you. It's the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That the gospel, the death and resurrection of Jesus, is what everything in the story has been pointing to, and after it, everything flows out of that. So that's called redemption. Theologians will call it creation, fall, and then redemption is the climax, and then restoration. But you see, it's, it's a story. It's a story that unfolds. You see, it's not, it's not just a manual for life. In other words, you know, I mean, if it was, you think of it this way. If it was a manual for life, it's really not organized very well. Have you ever thought about this before? You know, you're like, you're like, boy, you know, okay, I really need some advice on marriage. Okay, you know, it's not like the, their chapters are organized that way. Like, how, you know, chapter one, how to have a godly marriage. You know, chapter two, how do you deal with your finances in a godly way? Uh, chapter three, uh, you know, uh, how should I interact with my coworkers at work? It's just not organized. I mean, if, if you're looking for a manual, you're probably confused. You open Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. I mean, what is with all of these different chapter headings? It doesn't make any sense. That, that's not what the Bible primarily is. It's, it's not a, a manual to tell you how to live your life. That's not primarily how it is. Now, am I saying that the Bible doesn't tell us how to live our lives? Doesn't give us good advice? No, of course not. Absolutely, it does. But here's what we have to realize is that that whenever the Bible tells us something or instructs us or uses a story, oftentimes it uses stories to, to make some sort of point, right? What we have to realize is that all of the things that the Bible tells us do not lead to life unless they are read in light of the gospel. That we interpret everything in the Bible In light of the gospel, everything points to the climax or flows out of it. So no matter what you're reading, no matter what passage you're reading in the Bible, the connection is, well, how how does the gospel inform my understanding of this passage? Because if we don't do that, then guess what? The Bible doesn't lead to life. The Bible by itself doesn't lead to life. Jesus says it himself. John chapter 5. John chapter 5, he's speaking to the religious leaders of his day who knew their Bibles really well. John chapter 5, verse 39, you diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. But these are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. You see, if you just look to the Bible and you just look for the principles to come out of it, you see, that, that's not actually going to lead to life. Paul says the same thing in Romans chapter 7. Here he's talking about the commandments, right? The, the commandments of God that are revealed to us in Scripture. He says, once I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me. And through the commandment, put me to death. Saying that the the law, the scriptures by themselves don't lead to life. Only leads to life in light of the gospel. In, in, In light of the gospel and... 
In fact, I remember hearing uh, Phil Vischer, who was the creator of the of VeggieTales. Some of you might have heard of VeggieTales, have VeggieTales videos. And uh, he realized, he, you know, he was with them for 10 years or something like that, but he looked back, and in hindsight, he realized that, that VeggieTales does a good job of explaining Bible stories in an entertaining way and, and usually providing some sort of moral principle about how we ought to live. But what he realized is that it actually didn't do a very good job, in general, of connecting with the larger story. Didn't always connect kids with the gospel. That you, you know, and you, you, Maybe you got a story about Joshua and Joshua's courage, and so... So we should be courageous, you know. But, but how does it connect to the overarching picture? You see, Jesus is telling us that if you don't do that, it's not going to lead to life. And you know why? And what Paul's getting at is because if you just try to do what the Bible tells you to do, you're going to fail. You're going to fail. You read these stories, oh, this is how I should live my life, and you try, and you can't. This is what Paul's saying. You, you, you can't do it, so you have to read it in light of the gospel. And, and, and this, this is why... Uh, in our community groups, what, what I look for in a community group leader more than anything is do they get the gospel? Do they get the gospel? And that's even, to me, more central than how well do they know the Bible. Because you can know the Bible, you can know all the stories and all of that, but if you aren't able to see how the gospel informs that, it, it doesn't actually do any good. Now, of course, if you do get the gospel, then the more you know the Bible, the more it'll... It'll, it'll flesh out the gospel. It'll make it more real to you. You'll see how the Bible, how it impacts different areas of life. I mean, so, so yeah, you, you want to know the Bible as well as you possibly can, but it doesn't do you any good if you're not really centered on the gospel. So that's the first thing that I look for. I, I talk about how the importance of gospel literacy before biblical literacy. We need to really get the gospel. That, that's, that's the center of it all. Otherwise, it doesn't, doesn't lead to life. So what does a gospel-centered church look like? Well, a gospel-centered church always asks these two questions. How does the gospel speak and inform me? Of, excuse me, how, how does the gospel help me to understand this passage of Scripture? And two, how does the gospel help me to understand this life situation? How does the gospel help me to understand this passage of Scripture? It's always the first question. This is one of the reasons why you you probably notice that no matter what I'm preaching from, no matter what passage, I'm always trying to connect it to the gospel, always trying to see where that connection is. And actually, one of the things that I try to do when I'm absent is I, I, I try to be as selective as I can in terms of who preaches because I want to try to get people who get that. Because you can actually get people who know the Bible very well, and, and they'll, they'll do a great job of expositing a passage and saying, well, this is what it means, and this is what we should do, and this is how we should live. But there's no connection to the gospel. I, I used to do that. I used to be that way. But see, a gospel-centered church is always asking this question, how does the gospel help me to understand this passage? And then secondly, how does the gospel help me to understand this life situation? Right, so, so in other words, uh, yeah, we, we do go to the Bible and say, okay, well, how, what does the Bible say about family? And what does the Bible say about sexuality? And what does the Bible say about any number of things? And, and we want to see what it says, but then we got to ask ourselves, okay, but what does it say in light of the gospel? What is it saying to me in light of the death and the resurrection 
of Jesus. What is this passage saying? And, and in this life situation, how does the gospel speak to me through scripture and help me to understand this? Gospel centered, always asking this question, how does the gospel help me understand this passage and how does the gospel help me understand this life situation? And we do this because we know that the gospel is, it's news. It's not just good advice. It's centered around this, this event, the death and the resurrection of Jesus that everything points to and flows out of that news. So first of all, the gospel is news. Secondly, the gospel is freedom. The gospel is freedom. In a gospel-centered church, you're always asking yourself, how does the death and resurrection of Jesus inform this particular life situation, this thing that I'm dealing with? And first and foremost, above everything else, Here's what the gospel does. This is how it informs us of every life situation. Here's what it tells us. It tells us this. It's going to be okay. No matter what your life situation is, what the gospel tells you, if if you put your faith in the gospel, you trust in Jesus, it's saying whatever your situation is, it's going to be okay. I remember when I was 12 years old, and, and I, I first became a Christian, and at 12, I wouldn't have been able to articulate my faith with the theological precision that I can now after having gone to seminary, but I just remember what, what, what this overwhelming sense of, it's, it's going to be okay. I'm, like, I'm 12 years old, I have my whole life ahead of me, and it really doesn't matter, like, I'm going to be Okay. That's what the gospel does, no matter what challenges you're facing today, no matter how hard they seem to you, the gospel is telling you that it's going to be okay. You, you know, you may not understand how God's going to work it out. You may not understand what it's, how that's going to look, or, or you may not understand the, the, the trials and difficulties you may have to go through, but you can hold on to this reality that because Jesus died on the cross to forgive us of our sin and rose from the grave, conquered death, conquered evil, but whatever it is you're dealing with, it, it's going to be okay. You see, there's just this, this freedom, this freedom. And so I think that a, a church that really believes the gospel will increasingly be a church that just is not anxious. Anxiety just isn't part of the culture of the church. Worry and anxiety just isn't part of the culture. You, you, just, you just rest in this reality that... that that everything's going to be okay. There's a joy. Joy is, is part of a, a church that really bleeds the gospel, a joy that is there in the midst of whatever the circumstances are. Freedom. Because you know whatever you're facing is going to be okay. Freedom because you know that everything that really needs to get done has already been done. Freedom, because everything that, that, that really needs to get done has already been done. God has already done what really needs to get done. I remember one time, uh, Laura and I were getting ready to travel somewhere. I don't know where we were going, but I'd had a long day, and I was behind getting ready. And, and I come home, and it's late, and I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I've got to pack. I'm going to be up all night. I haven't packed anything. And, 
I come home, and in the living room are the bags. And they're already packed. My wife had already packed the bags, and, and, and this, this weight just, right? You know, when all of a sudden, all, all this stuff that you think needs to get done, you realize that somebody's already done it for you? Just that weight that comes off your shoulders? You see, that's the, that's the freedom that comes from the gospel, because this is what, what Paul's getting at in, in this passage he talks about how he, he used to pursue a righteousness of his own, a righteousness of his own. In other words, he used to live like it was all up to him. He used to live like, you know, I, I, you know I've, I've got something to prove, right? I, I've got there, don't we, so many of us, we, we go through life with this overwhelming sense of I've got something to prove. And you know, we, we talked about this last week with, when we looked at vainglory. And it's just this, this sense that, you know, I've got something to prove, and then, and then if you do prove something, then you're worried that, that you're going to lose it, you know, that you're, you're gonna, people are going to realize that you were, you were just a fake or something like that. So you go through your whole life feeling like everything is up to you. And that's what Paul's talking about when he says, I used to pursue a righteousness of my own, but he says, I consider all that rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, not from a righteousness that, where, where I'm trying to do all these things that God says I'm supposed to do. You know, it, it, it doesn't come from that. It's a righteousness that comes from faith in Christ or the faithfulness of Christ. It's what he has done for me. It's just this freedom. This freedom that comes from recognizing that, that God's already done what needs to get done. Of course, what's closely related to this is this whole notion of our identity and our worth and our value. Do we find it in our, in, in our own accomplishments or our own failures? Or do we find it in the fact that Jesus died to forgive us of our sin and to welcome us into the family of God as children of God, not based on what we do, but on the basis of what he has done? So many of us find our identity in what we do, either our, our good things or our bad things, and that, that seems to define us. But, but when you realize the gospel, the freedom that comes from it, your identity and your worth comes in what Jesus has done. And so what does a gospel center, what does this look like? What, what does a church that bleeds the gospel look like? Well, I'll tell you this. A church that bleeds the gospel is a church where authentic community can really take place. Authentic community where you don't feel like you need to hide anything. You don't feel like you need to hide your struggles and your difficulties. A church that bleeds the gospel is a church where people freely confess their sin without fear of being judged. And it's a church where people freely rebuke one another without fear of defensiveness. And just this week, I, I was graciously rebuked uh, earlier in the week by, by someone in our church. And she did it so graciously, I don't think she was even... It was just, there was grace all there, right? Because... She knows her worth isn't in, there's, there's no, her worth is in Christ. My worth is in Christ. That's just there, right? So, so there's just this graciousness about the whole thing. And, and that's what can happen in, in a church where, where people get the gospel is that, is that you, you know, and, and, and I was, you know, I was like, I realized, you know, my worth and my identity isn't in whether or not I messed this up, you know? So I wasn't, I wasn't hurt by it. I was like, okay, you're right. I messed that up. I'm really sorry about that. 
And I'm not always like that. You know, the gospel's still working through me. I often can get very defensive, but I was actually really happy. I'm like, maybe the gospel's actually changing me, because I really, I wasn't bothered that, that she said this, you know. And that's what happens in a, in a community where the gospel is real, is that you, you can confess your sin, you're not in fear of being judged, and, and you can also confront one another because there's no fear of defensiveness. There's just this grace that permeates the culture. This is the freedom freedom of the gospel. So the gospel is news. It's freedom. And it's power. It's power. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. The heart of the gospel is this amazing truth that the very spirit, the very power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to his people. Now, there's a tension. I know there's an already not yet tension to the nature of the kingdom of God. The full power won't be revealed until he raises his people to life at the end of the age. There's a tension there. It's an already not yet. It's not yet, but it's also already, and we see this as we'll see this as we go through the book of Acts. The early Christians, they they had come to see that the power of God was available now. And so a a church that really bleeds the gospel is, is a church, I think, that really prays. I think prayer really marks a church that bleeds the gospel. Prayer, heartfelt prayer, not, not some sort of ritualistic prayer, all kind of churches where... You know, you pray, you have this ritual of praying, or you've always prayed at this time, and you always pray, and, and it just becomes a ritual, right? Not, not that, not that there's anything wrong with routine. In fact, routine can be very important, but, but we're not really talking necessarily about that. We're talking about an entire culture where prayer is just, it's just part of who we are. Because we believe that God actually can do things in our lives. You know, we're, we're starting this, this new ministry where we're asking the prayer team to come up at the end of the service and to be available for people to, to pray. And I don't want this to turn into a new law. Where it's like, well, boy, I, I haven't gone up for prayer in a while. They must, must be thinking, you know, something's wrong with me. Like, like, you know, I, not like that. We don't want to turn this into another law. We just want this to, to come out of and flow out of the fact that we believe that God can actually change us. I said that Paul comes to this realization that what the Bible teaches us to do and the Bible, how the, the Bible teaches us how to live, that there's a certain way in which we're called to live, and what Paul comes to realize is that he can't do it, doesn't lead to life. Romans 7, right, says the commandments tell me to live this way, but I can't live this way. But then in Romans 8, you know what he says? He says, actually, in light of the gospel, you can begin to live this way. Maybe, maybe you know, the commandment told me not to covet, but I just coveted more. He's saying, actually, in light of the gospel, that, there, that the power of God can actually begin to change your heart and transform you such that you live differently. 
You can't do it on your own, but in light of the gospel, the power is available to begin living differently. We looked at the seven deadly sins, right? And the point is, you know, if you just look at lust, greed, gluttony, envy, you know, like, I just, I can't do any of that. That's right. You know, I'm, I'm just, I'm in those sins. That's where I am. I try to get out. I can never get out. Right? That's what Paul's saying. Like, you're stuck in it. But in light of the gospel, it's saying, you know, you actually can begin to change. Not perfectly. It's never going to be perfect. But the very power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to work in us and to transform us. And so a church that really bleeds the gospel is a church that believes in their heart and longs to be changed, to be transformed. A church that bleeds the gospel a church that believes the gospel doesn't just read the Bible because they're interested in the stories. They don't read the Bible because they, they really like learning lots of knowledge about the Bible. They're not interested in going to a Bible study uh, just for information. You know, I, I think the truth is a lot of, a lot of people, it's like you, you, you can go to a Bible study, you're inter, maybe you're even interested in the Bible, but you're interested in the Bible just like some other guy's interested in World War II history. You know, he really likes reading books about World War II, and I really like reading the Bible, but it's kind of like a hobby, like you're just interested in it. I mean, I, I, I knew no people, you know, in seminary, like go to seminary, they just love learning theology and all this kind of stuff, right? But they're, they're not really interested in changing, they just like the they just like the stories. You know, they want to know it, and they, you know, and and so this is why I like to say that a gospel centered church is centered on transformation, not information. Transformation, not information. This is one of the reasons why I continue to push our community groups, and I push community groups even over our church offering lots of classes. You know, we could offer lots of classes. We could do that, and I, I do think there's actually a place for that. I mean, I, I did four years of seminary, so I obviously like classes. I think there is a place for it. But we, we, we've got to realize that it's, it's different, that I think that, the, that a place like a community group, and I'll, I'll get into this more next week when we look at community, is really a better venue for fostering transformation. That's what we're after. We're after change. We're after transformation. We're not after information. We're not after entertainment. I, I, I think... In the North American church, there's been some streams that have pushed almost towards entertainment. Almost like, you know, almost like coming to church on Sunday is like going to a movie or, or going out to a comedy club. You know, it's like, it just makes me feel good. Right? If, if we just come to church, we just want to feel good, you know, go home and watch The Office. I, I watch The Office. I always feel good after I watch The Office. I'm not a better person. Truthfully, I'm, I might even be a worse person after I watch The Office. I, I don't know. But, you know, it's just, it's different. But I think some of us, we even come to church, it's just kind of in to be entertained. And, and I hope, I don't, I don't want us to entertain you. I hope that you're engaged. We want to engage you. We want everything that we do in the service, we want to do well. We want to do with excellence to honor God and to engage one another. But that's different than entertainment. We're not after information. We're not after entertainment. We're after change. You see, a church that really bleeds the gospel is a church where, where, where we hunger for and we desire to see God work in our lives and bring change. The gospel is, is news. 
A church that believes the gospel is a church that, that always asks this question, how does the gospel inform my understanding of this passage of scripture and, and how does the gospel inform this life situation? The gospel is, is freedom. A church that, that believes the gospel is a, is a church that is increasingly free of anxiety and worry because we know that it's going to be okay. It's a, it's a church that, that has this freedom to be authentic, to genuinely confess your sin and rebuke one another because the context of grace eliminates judgmentalism and defensiveness. It, it, we just grow in this. Right? And we, even be, we forgive each other of our defensiveness and our judgmentalism. It just creates this culture of, of grace that allows for authentic, genuine community. And the gospel is power. A church that bleeds the gospel is a church that hungers and believes, not just in their minds but in their hearts, that the very power that raised Jesus from the dead is available to bring change in our lives. My prayer is that we will increasingly be a church that believes the gospel. Let's pray. Dear God, we praise you for the good news of Jesus Christ. Lord, may your death and your resurrection never be just some text or some test of orthodoxy. You sign off. It says that you're part of the right people. God, I pray that it would be the very thing around which we organize our lives. I pray that the death and resurrection of Jesus would, would just run through our veins. If people cut us open, that's what they would see. I pray this in Jesus' name.